welcome to Hebraic Insights in the Gospels. Join us every Sabbath on Zion Road Radio for a look at the life, deeds, and words of Yeshua Messiah and his followers. From the Torah-centric Hebraic perspective, they were originally lived and written in. Today's program is on Matthew chapter 26, verse 1 through verse 46. Who was Caiaphas? Was he a real person? Why did these religious leaders decide to kill Messiah? Was it simply a religious misunderstanding or some kind of unintentional mistake? What can we learn from Messiah's actions about how to approach the trials in our lives and the great tribulation ahead? What can we learn from his disciples' reactions? Why should we be careful not to stumble? And how can we prepare ourselves now to avoid stumbling or falling away when the trials come? Stay tuned through to the end of today's program for Eliyahu ben David's insight on these questions and more in Matthew chapter 26, verse 1 through verse 46. It happened when Yeshua had finished all these words that he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas. They took counsel together, that they might take Yeshua by deceit and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest a riot occur among the people. Now when Yeshua was in Bethany, in the house of Simon, the leper, a woman came to him, having an alabaster jar of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw this, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. However, knowing this, Yeshua said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? Because she has done a good work for me. For you always have the poor with you, but you don't always have me. For in pouring this ointment on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Most certainly, I tell you, wherever this good news is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of as a memorial of her. Then one of the twelve, who was called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me that I should deliver him to you? They weighed out for him thirty pieces of silver. From that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. Supplemental to that portion, 
Here's John chapter 11, verse 45 through verse 53. This portion is after Messiah resurrected Mary's brother Lazarus from the dead. Therefore, many of the Judeans who came to Mary and saw what Yeshua did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things which Yeshua had done. The chief priests, therefore, and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What are we doing? For this man does many signs. If we leave him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But a certain one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is advantageous for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation not perish. Now he didn't say this of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Yeshua would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but that he might also gather together into one the children of Elohim, who are scattered abroad. So from that day forward, they took counsel that they might put him to death. And now, here's Eliyahu ben David on those verses. Good evening, friends. Great to have you with us. Tonight we go into Matthew chapter 26. And it's been an amazing story going through the book of Matthew. We've seen the story of Messiah and how he came into the world, how he took up his ministry, and truly the amazing things that he did. And this is unmatched by anyone ever <laughs> and anything anybody's ever seen. Feeding 5,000 men with a few loaves and fishes. Who could do something like that? Walking on water. Grabbing a hold of the hearts of men and women with the truth. He had such an effect that when he entered into Jerusalem, he was accepted by many as the king. He put a lot of pressure on the ruling power, the elite of his day, because everything he said, everything he did was a challenge to their hypocritical, lying, evil ways. And so things were coming to a head. And in Matthew 26, we arrive at the place where the plot to kill the Messiah begins. They couldn't out-talk him. They couldn't out-think him. They couldn't out teach him, and they certainly could not outperform him. They were left with two choices. One, to accept him 
as the true Messiah of Israel, or two, to kill him. We know which one they chose. Matthew 26, 3 through 5 says this. Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest, who is called Caiaphas. They took counsel together that they might take Yeshua by deceit and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest a riot occur among the people. This is an interesting verse for many different reasons. One simple fact is, this is where Caiaphas is introduced in the Renewed Covenant Scriptures. This is the first time we see him by name. And I think it's kind of interesting. The first time we see him by name, he's plotting the death of our Messiah. He was a significant person with great power in that society. And I think a lot of us might not understand just how significant. You know, many of us live in countries where there's a plurality of religions. So we're not really used to one kind of religious official having great power over the people. But there in Judea, the person who was the principal person in the Jewish religion of that day was a person who was endowed with a great deal of authority and power. Now, here's a picture for you. You know, I'm sure most of us don't live in a palace. And even if you have a really nice house, <laughs> it's not a palace. This is the palace of Caiaphas. It's a model constructed by a scholar in Jerusalem. And it kind of changes your picture about what was going on back there, doesn't it? This was not only the place where Caiaphas lived, but this was the official center of the Jewish religion in terms of all the administration of the Jewish religion in the first century. The Sanhedrin met there, and there were cells. There was, in fact, a dungeon under the home of Caiaphas. This is where prisoners were held. So that's a lot of authority invested there in that building, which was the home of the high priest Caiaphas, a very important person in the first century. This is the place where the plot was hatched to kill Yeshua. This is where Caiaphas got together with all of the other top officials of the Jewish religion to hash this all out and decide what their course of action was going to be. And I think as you just simply look at that model, you can get an idea why 
there was never any consideration whatsoever given to accepting Yeshua as the Messiah. Because there's no way these people were going to give up the position they had. And I think it's interesting there in John, they were saying if they didn't do something, then all the people would believe in Yeshua as the Messiah. Is that itself not an incriminating statement? For them to say that, are they not, in fact, saying that there is enough evidence to prove that he's the Messiah? Isn't this the most cold-blooded thing you can imagine? For them to actually know that and decide to kill him anyway. I think most of us cannot grasp this level of evil. I think, you know, we're inclined to think, well, oh, it must have been a mistake or, you know, they must have been blinded by this or that or whatever. It's kind of hard to imagine that these people were faced with this choice of what are they going to do with the Messiah of Israel who has actually fulfilled all the prophecies of Scripture, who has all of these amazing signs All the people have seen it. They themselves say, if we don't do something to stop this, all the people will believe in him on account of these signs. And then they decide to kill him anyway. That makes me mad. That makes me mad. Is that a reason to hate the Jews? You know, many people put those two things together because of what Caiaphas and these other priests did in that corrupt administration. They extrapolate from that a position of hatred for the Jews. And let me tell you, that is absurd because in every culture, in Every government that has ever existed on this earth, you give it enough time and it gets to a point where it's run by these people. And they don't have to be Jews to behave like this. Turn on your evening news some night and see what is going on in the United States of America in our government. And I will tell you, those are the same people. This is timeless. It's not just this particular bunch of people. This is how it's been on planet Earth since shortly after the Garden of Eden. That is the fact. What should have been different here, though, is that these are the covenant people of Yahweh. These people have made a promise to him not to behave like that. And so, of course, that does separate these individuals who made this choice out from the rest of all the people like them with a unique guilt. And that is a fact. Caiaphas. Let's learn a little more about 
him tonight. I think it's uh, significant that in our time, this ossuary or bone box of Caiaphas was discovered. You know, there are many names of first century Judeans that are common names. Yeshua was a common name, for example. However, this is not true of the name Caiaphas. Caiaphas was a very distinctive name, and not everybody had that name. It was a very specific name. So to find this bone box of Caiaphas, I think, is very significant. And look at this thing. You know, just think about the fact that this was all carved out. It's clearly not something that the common ordinary person would have. In fact, there are other bone boxes. It's what they did in the first century. And they're usually very simple. This one is very ornate. It's what you'd expect of someone who was influential. And this box is in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. If you visit Jerusalem, you can go into the museum and see this, along with a lot of other things. You know, people used to say at one time that this was just a made-up story and that these people never existed. There never was a high priest Caiaphas. But then they found out, oh, wait a minute, Josephus mentions Caiaphas. And then they actually found the tomb of Caiaphas. And then they actually found the bone box that his bones were buried in. I think there's a message in that. Yeshua Messiah didn't leave any bones behind, friends. And you know what? After you're gone, it doesn't matter how ornate your bone box is because <laughs> it'll do you no good. But the truth about this is that this is just more evidence, this is just more proof that what we're reading in the Gospels is gospel. It's absolutely the truth. Eyewitnesses, they're telling us about actual history. These are people that really existed. And the people that you meet in this gospel story are the real people that once walked the streets of Jerusalem. This is a reproduction of the inscription on the bone box. And you can see the translation, Joseph, son of Caiaphas. And, of course, as was explained by Josephus, that was actually the full name of the Caiaphas, the high priest of the scriptures. So, in my opinion, there's little doubt that this is the real Caiaphas of the scriptures whose bone box was discovered. So we have a model of the house of Caiaphas. 
we have a location that's identified as the dungeon of the house of Caiaphas under a Greek Orthodox church in Jerusalem. And there's more that's constantly coming out, validating the story that we find in the book of Matthew and the rest of the New Covenant scriptures. The plot to kill Messiah begins. That's what we see happening in Matthew 26. Here, we see the tone of the story now changing. And just as this woman is pouring out this precious oil upon his feet, it's telling us now things are moving towards his death. He knew it. Now some of them were starting to know it. Some of them were starting to understand it. It begins there. It happened when Yeshua had finished all these words that he said to his disciples. You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. He certainly knew it was coming. When I think about this, and I think about the palace of Caiaphas, I think about the political power that those people could exercise, and I read these words of Messiah, I'm seeing someone that is so amazing to me. I'm seeing a man who you can't help but admire, apart from whether or not he's the Son of God, okay? And I believe that. But as a man, does he not amaze you? You know, in our time, most of us, if we see a blue light in our mirror, we get a little queasy, right? We just instinctively have a healthy fear of the authorities. Most people do. Because people know bad things can happen to you, and you don't want to get on their bad side. Yeshua Messiah essentially came here to get on their bad side. There was nothing else he could do because they were on the wrong side. And he knew this was all going to happen, and yet he was straight as an arrow in what he did. His resolve was unflinching. His actions were absolutely perfect according to his integrity, the integrity of his heart, and his motivations were perfect. He wasn't concerned, first of all, about what was going to happen to him. He was concerned above all things doing his father's will. These are so important for us to know and for us to think about because, you know, he said, they hated me, they're going to hate you too. And we are living in the time period where all of this is finally going to come to a head. We need to be awake to the fact of what can happen and that we ourselves may 
be put in a place where we're in the same situation he was in, where we actually will have to face evil authority in this world. And therefore, this chapter, as we see them beginning to plot his death, takes on personal meaning towards us as well, because this very thing could happen to us as disciples. This is why we need to be in his word. This is why we need to make him the priority, because, you know, everything hangs in the balance for us. If we just go along to get along with the world, we'll end up where the world is going to end up. We don't want that to happen. So, very serious things that we confront here in the book of Matthew, chapter 26. Things for us all to consider and pray about. And uh, things that we need to take personally. Stay tuned. Eliyahu has more to share in the book of Matthew after this short break. Would you like to hear more of Eliyahu's teachings? Do you have a question or prayer request and would like to get in touch with one of our volunteers for help? Or do you just want to know more about Eliyahu ben David and Zion Ministry? Visit our website at zion.org where you can 
Listen to more teachings from Eliyahu Ben David straight from the homepage of our website. Check out our books, DVDs, internet videos, and other social media outlets. Learn more about Eliyahu and the Zion team on the About page. See what our ministry's mission is on the Remnant Vision page. Send a question or prayer request from our Contact Us page. Or click Join Us in the menu bar to learn about our community site, Zion Tabernacle. To find out more about Zion Ministry, go to zion.org. That's zion.org, spelled T-S-I-Y-O-N dot O-R-G.
Welcome back. Here's the next scripture portion. Matthew 26, verse 17 through verse 46. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Yeshua, saying to him, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain person and tell him, The rabbi says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Yeshua commanded them, and they prepared the Passover. Now when evening had come, he was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. As they were eating, he said, Most certainly I tell you that one of you will betray me. They were exceedingly sorrowful, and each began to ask him, It isn't me, is it, Lord? He answered, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish, the same will betray me. The Son of Man goes even as it is written of him, but woe to that man through whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who betrayed him, answered, It isn't me, is it, Rabbi? He said to him, You said it. As they were eating, Yeshua took bread, gave thanks for it, and broke it. He gave to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. He took the cup, gave thanks, and gave to them, saying, All of you drink it, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. But I tell you that I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung the Hallel, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Yeshua said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me tonight. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. But Peter answered him, Even if all will be made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Yeshua said to him, Most certainly I tell you, that tonight before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said likewise. Then Yeshua came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and said to his disciples, Sit here, will I go there and pray? He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and severely troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went forward a little, fell on his face, and prayed, saying, If it is possible, let this cup pass away from me. Nevertheless, not what I desire, but what you desire. He came to the disciples, and found them sleeping, and said to Peter, What, couldn't you watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray that you don't enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, My father, if this cup can't pass away from me unless I drink it, your desire be done. He came again and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. He left them again, went away and prayed a third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, 
Sleep on now, and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let's be going. Behold, he who betrays me is at hand. And now, here's Eliyahu ben David's insight on that portion. Greetings, friends. We have a very interesting passage in Scripture tonight. Matthew 26, 17 through 46. This is, in some ways, a very special time that we're looking into. It is the time of impending trials. The trials are about to begin. Nobody likes trials. I certainly don't. I'm sure you don't. It seems like whether we're ready or whether we're not, trials can fall upon us. The difference between being ready and not being ready can be a very big difference, as we're going to see as we look at what happened with Yeshua Messiah and with the disciples on that fateful night of his final Passover with his disciples. And, you know, there's a sense of drama in this, in this particular period that we're looking at right here that happened on that night. Because this is all just before the thick of these trials were about to fall upon Messiah and upon these disciples. And it really strikes me that these moments, just before the trials fall, can be so critical. And, you know, many times we don't see those things coming because it came out of the blue. As uh, I went through this, I saw at least four statements of impending trials that came from Messiah that night. Of course, it must have been shocking to hear that one of you will betray me. And the response, it isn't me, is it, Lord? To me, that response seems strange. It seems like those who were not betraying him would know that, right? And it's almost like events were happening, but they weren't fully part of the events. It's like they were in a fog, sort of a brain fog set in. So they weren't getting the full impact of what was happening. This becomes clearer as we go ahead. Of course, then he instituted the new covenant with them. Now, he's thinking beyond what's happening just in that night. He's thinking even down to our time, right? And he's acting on behalf of all of his disciples through all those ages in establishing that covenant. But really, in making the statement, this is my blood poured out for many for the remission of sins, shouldn't this ring a few bells? That something 
is about to happen. And then his direct statement to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me tonight. That couldn't be more straightforward. He's telling them they are about to stumble. You know, I look at Peter's response, saying, oh, no, I'm not going to stumble. I think about that, and I think, you know, maybe that's how some of us feel. Maybe we just assume that we have such a good relationship with the Lord that, no, we're not going to stumble when the trial comes. Maybe when we consider what happened with Peter, we should rethink that position. And then, of course, we have Messiah saying, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Clearly, this is unusual. This is not how they usually saw Yeshua, because he was not a sorrowful person. He was not what we call today a depressive type of person. He was a joyful person. He was a loving person, and he was a present-in-the-moment kind of person. So for him to be exceedingly sorrowful even to death, why, that should really be ringing the bells for the disciples. Well, we have three different reactions to the impending trials during this time of the trials impending but not yet having fallen. Let's take a look at this. First, we have Messiah. Now, we can say Messiah is the Son of God, so we should expect him to do the right thing. But you know what? For us to look at it that way totally ignores the human side of who he was. That for his experience to be meaningful for us, he had to fully experience as a man everything that is connected with this sacrifice of his. And indeed, he had the same feelings that any person would have facing a horrible death. So, he was ready. Even though that was all coming. And as we look at the way he behaved that evening, the things he did, the things he said, we see he was fully present in the will of God. He wasn't so upset about what was going to happen that he simply couldn't function, that he was gripped with fear, that he was feeling sorry for himself, that he was just talking about the things that were going to happen to him. That's what happened with many people if they were facing death and they knew it. But what is he thinking about? He's thinking about two things. He's thinking about doing his father's will, and he's thinking about his disciples. And that's what you see as you look at this. He has this last Passover with them. 
He institutes the Lord's Supper with them at Passover, including the renewed covenant. He gives them this warning. He dispatches the betrayer from their midst. All of which shows his complete presence through that entire ordeal, even while he's facing these impending trials. Well, let's go on and see about the disciples. We refresh our mind here. They had these four statements of impending trials that happened that evening. And yet, how did it all turn out for them? He told them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me tonight. That certainly should have caused them to be aware and awake. But Peter had answered, even if all will be made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Peter was overconfident. And because of his false confidence, he didn't do what he needed to do, right? He needed to do what Messiah did. Look at the difference between Messiah and Peter here. Here is Messiah, the Son of God, right? The Messiah of Israel. And he didn't feel it above himself to watch and pray as the trials were coming up. And here's Peter, the student, not the master. And he's thinking, oh, no, this will never happen to me. I'll never do that. How foolish. What a foolish attitude. We can't take our performance, our faithfulness, for granted. This is something we learn from Peter. Then we have the other disciples. Just think about it. Particularly the more prominent three. Messiah asked them to watch and pray with him. Now just think about that. His closest friends in the world in this time, just hours before this ordeal was going to come into his life, he's reaching out to his friends to give him support and to stand with him in prayer. And what do they do? They go to sleep. I think it's sad that sometimes Messiah's disciples, maybe even you and I, let him down. We treat him like he's not a person sometimes, that he doesn't have the same feelings like a person. Maybe that's how they thought of him. Well, we don't know exactly what you're going through here, but we need to get some rest. That's not a good friend. You want Messiah to be a friend to you? Be a good friend to him.
Watch and pray that you don't enter into temptation, he warned them. They should have followed his example, and then they would have been ready. Look at what he says on observing their attitude. He didn't scold them. He didn't get mad and say, you know, you guys are terrible friends. Even though they were, in that moment, terrible friends. He said, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He pinpointed the real problem, didn't he? It's not that they didn't want to be good friends. They just didn't get it. And they were weak. They were tired. They were not rebelling against him. They simply were overcome by the weakness of the flesh. And so they did not do their best. And no doubt later, all of them repented of that. They probably felt terrible about it. And yet, they couldn't change it. You know, we can do that. We, we're weak. We make mistakes. But if we would listen to Messiah, sometimes we wouldn't have to make those mistakes. And wouldn't it be better to think back on a certain moment where we have failed and instead be able to think we succeeded? Wouldn't it have been better for them if they had watched and prayed? If they could look back and feel, oh, we were there for him when he needed us. But they couldn't say that. Nevertheless, I think his words tell us he had already forgiven them. And they were able to move on. So, something we need to look at here. This doesn't mean because of the weakness of the flesh, we can just go ahead and satisfy our flesh. You know, sometimes that might happen, and over and over again, we know Messiah forgives us, and he puts us back on the path. But there's danger in taking that step, because if we continually give in to the weakness of the flesh, we could find ourselves not being able to find our way back. We could fall and not come back. Now, here we have the example, the bad example, of the betrayer. And the scriptures tell us what happened to him. You know, there's lots of different stories that have come out about Judas Iscariot and I even saw a movie one time that was saying he's basically a good guy, but he had a different political point of view than Messiah, and he thought he was doing the right thing. People have these kinds of ideas. Well, the truth is, the scriptures tell us what happened with Judas, and they don't leave room for the imagination. John 12, 4 through 6, tells us he was a thief. And having the money box used to steal what was put into it. 
So he had a weakness of the flesh, greed. And he was a thief. And where did this take him? He saw an opportunity when the priests were scheming to kill Yeshua. And he thought, wow, I could make some money here. And so he sold out his Lord for a few pieces of silver. You know, earlier on, had he corrected his behavior, then he might not have ended up in such a precarious place. And then on that fateful night, who tells us Satan entered into him. Just imagine that. He was so one with Satan through his greed that he opened the door of his heart, and instead of the Spirit of God living there, the enemy of God, Satan, came in. This is dangerous territory. This is why we need to avoid stumbling even from weakness if we possibly can do that. And the Word tells us, watch and pray. That really is the answer. So we have here three responses to impending trials that are possible. We have Messiah giving us the perfect example of being ready because he walked with Yahweh and he lived his life towards his father. So he was in tune with his father's will and had a heart to be fully obedient so that even in his prayers that night, he said, not my will, but yours be done. We could be on that very critical moment like the disciples. Not ready, not really understanding what is going on, not having awareness of the importance of events that are actual signs that something big is about to happen. And yet, we don't see it, we don't get ready, we don't watch and pray. And so we're stumbled. You know, this is why we do this, right? <laughs> Isn't that why we come back here every week? Why we stay in the Word the way that we do? Why we participate in that endeavor together? Because we don't want that to happen to us. I'm preaching to the choir in a way. Because all of you who come, whether here in this building or around the world, you're here. You're coming here because you don't want to be stumbled. You know that we're in the last days. And you're doing what you can do to be ready. And that's very commendable that you're doing that. And it's going to make a difference when that day comes. Well, then we have the unspeakable alternative, don't we? 
And you know, we've seen this happen. We have seen betrayers stumble and fall and come into ruin. It's already happened to some people. And we pray that it won't happen to any of us. Luke 21:36 is talking about these days, these last days that we're living in. The Messiah has the same message for us that he had for those disciples that night. He says, therefore, be watchful all the time, praying that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will happen and to stand before the Son of Man. We are living in momentous times, friends. The world is changing very quickly. Trials can come upon us very rapidly. Yet, we can escape all these things that are about to happen. So let us watch and pray. You have been listening to Hebraic Insights in the Gospels. Further teachings and study materials on various related topics and others can be found at our membership site, Zion Tabernacle. Sign up is free. Just go to zion.net. That's T-S-I-Y-O-N dot Or click the membership link on the Zion Road website. New programs on the Gospels will be airing every Sabbath on Zion Road Radio. Join us next Shabbat to learn more in the book of Matthew. Shabbat Shalom!